Good afternoon. I'm Michael Saltzman, and uh, it's my pleasure to welcome you to one of the highlights of the 10th Annual City Lit Festival, readings by our featured poets. Each year, Greg Wilhelm and the Pratt Library and I try to bring you some of the most prominent poetic voices in the country. This year's activities semi-intentionally seem to focus on the position of State Poets Laureate. Even this year's judge of the fourth annual Clorinda Harris Poetry Prize, Marie Howe, is the current Poet Laureate of New York State. And both of our featured poets, uh, Dick Allen from Connecticut and our own Stanley Plumley from Maryland, are current State Poets Laureate. I've been practicing that phrase, Poets Laureate, assiduously. Uh, I will introduce them individually, and following the two readings, we will enthrone them, and, uh, and they will be ready for a Q&A with you. Uh, so I'm going to, we're just going to do it alphabetically, like for any reading. And uh, so my first pleasure of the afternoon is to introduce Dick Allen. The honorary position of Connecticut Poet Laureate was established by the state in 1985. The first person to occupy this position was James Merrill. And some of Dick Allen's other predecessors include Marilyn Nelson and John Hollander. Dick is preeminent among those poets who've encouraged new sensibilities in poetry. He has been a leader in recuperating poetic modes and forms other than the confessional free verse of the generation that preceded his own. Some have considered Dick a new formalist, but it's interesting to note that he was sensibly not included in Rebel Angels, 25 Poets of the New Formalism, which is the classic anthology by Jarman and Mason, probably because his colleagues recognized that his much wider reach of his ambitions and the variety of his technical approaches. Dick is, in fact, one of the founders of an alternative movement, Expansive Poetry, which began in the 1980s and includes both new formalism and new narrative. In recent years, he has developed a new narrative lyric hybrid of his own invention called randomism. In a Poetry Daily interview, Dick Allen has said, quote, in a time so influenced by Archibald MacLeish's admonition that a poem should not mean but be, my task is to have the poem be and mean something, a non-preachy something, but something. Reading his poems, I'm often reminded of the symphonies of an earlier Connecticut modernist, Charles Ives. Dick's poems contain multitudes. They are a mashup of images and tunes, snatches of popular songs and folk music, everything collaged onto the American narrative interspersed and interwoven with our foods, our cars, our politics, our obsessions. Of course, you need a remarkable technical control to manage such a great circus of the imagination. And Dick's got that too. Perhaps it comes from his centeredness as a practicing Buddhist. His wonderfully informal essays on the craft of poetry are eye-opening and soul-cleansing. I urge you to seek out Zen Buddhism and poetry his introduction to a special issue of Rattle, later reprinted on Poetry Daily. This piece reads more like a very hip suite of prose poems than a conventional essay. The lyrical collages Alan fashions require research and deep mining of the American experience. Every year, Dick and his wife, Lori, a fine poet and fiction writer herself, 
drive thousands of miles to hear America singing before Dick captures that sound in his work. Never has fear of flying been turned to greater purpose. And each year they return with fistfuls of new ideas for writing projects. Dick Allen was born in Troy, New York in 1939, by the way, the same year that Stanley Plumley was born, and grew up in the village of Round Lake. I think he has always been a little suspicious of the big city. Even now, he lives a relatively reclusive life near Thrushwood Lake in Trumbull, Connecticut. He was educated at Syracuse University, that incubator of writers, and our featured guest in the last session of this auditorium comes from there as well, and obtained his master's at Brown University. Exceedingly loyal in all aspects of his life, Dick spent 33 years at the University of Bridgeport. Until 2001, he was director of creative writing and held the Charles A. Dana Endowed Chair as professor of English. Upon retirement, he was awarded the same position in the emeritus uh, category. I've learned and continue to learn a great deal from him and consider him one of my teachers as well as a dear friend. He is a terrific line-by-line -line editor and in a single word can spot the central error in any poem. He does so with love. His forthcoming eighth collection of poems, the shadowy This Shadowy Place, won him the prestigious New Criterion Prize and surprisingly is the first of his books to entirely consist of poems in fixed form. Of the previous seven, I especially recommend his Ode to the Cold War from 1997, a new and selected, and the marvelous Present Vanishing from 2008, winner of the Connecticut Book Award for Poetry. Present Vanishing is truly a book in which East and West meet. Some poems from this book that you will never forget have titles like Radiator Frog, Five Household Statues of Buddha and Rowing a Boat Across China, from his sequence, American Buddhism, Plum, and one of my favorites, listening to Kandinsky's paintings. Not to mention post-surrealism, a very funny poem about Gerard de Nerval, Wallace Stevens, and lobsters. Dick is a true long-distance runner. He seems to get more productive with the years and carefully constructs his books from the more than 700 poems that have appeared in the finest journals. Who else but Dick gets poems into diverse anthologies devoted to science fiction and the year's best spiritual writing? Dick has received a Pushcart Prize, six inclusions in the Best American Poetry Series, was a finalist for both the National Book Critics Circle Award and the William Carlos Williams Prize for the Best American Poetry Book of the Year. He's also won the Robert Frost Prize, the Hart Crane Poetry Prize, and regularly serves as judge for the Poets Prize, and we are fortunate to have him as the final judge for our own Clorinda Harris poetry competition. In closing, I would be remiss in not mentioning Dick's sterling ser service to the state of Connecticut in the aftermath of the 2012 Newtown Massacre. His poem, Solace, written in response to this tragedy, has been set to music for chorus and wind ensemble by noted American composer and Pulitzer Prize winner William Balcom. Solace will have its public premiere in Hartford and New Haven in early May. Dick has been carrying out his functions as poet laureate while completing a host of manuscripts. Perhaps he will favor us with some space sonnets, or poems from a mystical journey called the Nacor, or some of his delightfully lighthearted Chinese menu poems, 
or something else none of us can anticipate. Please help me welcome to the stage one of America's most big-hearted and genuinely adventurous creative spirits, my friend and the Zen master of Thrushwood Lake, Dick Allen. <laughs> like to read from the chair? No, no, no. Afterwards. Okay. Afterwards. Uh, only after uh, That has got to be the most fulsome and longest introduction <laughs> I have ever had. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. He had a lot of debts he had to repay to me. <laughs> it's um, <clears throat> very good to be Back in Maryland, which I consider, my wife and I consider almost our second state, our uh, daughter uh, went to a uh, college that most of you probably know of, uh, Washington College, over in Chestertown, and uh, we spent many, uh, many good times there. It's also a, a very great pleasure to be here, and let me read you a few poems we stayed last night at uh, a hotel, good hotel, it's a hotel from hell, um, which I think had a hundred years of allergens <laughs> in it, I swear. So I may not be able to perform as I usually, <coughs> usually do, so I'll read a little softer than I usually do, pardon my, my voice. I thought that um, since this is a library and uh, we're celebrating books, that I would uh, begin with reading a couple of poems about books. I grew up in a small town in upstate New York, and uh, which had readers and a nice small library in it. Um, and I used to pedal through town late at night and I would see lights on in some of the houses. And this is a poem about, about that, in a way, called The Book Lovers of Round Lake. Insomnia, most said. What other reason would cause the women of, this, of our town to stay up reading until almost dawn, fully dressed, their curtains never drawn, they sat by picture windows, reading on and on, snowfall to wind blow, books in golden cones of light upon the laps of Mrs. Brown and Mrs. O'Brien, Mrs. Shieldberg, old Miss Stone, the teacher who never married, Mr. Silverton, mysteries, romance, no child crossed their lawns to sneak up close enough to look upon what they were reading. And now they're gone well into the night. 
the August moon, fireflies, and will of the wisp. And you, book-bound author, love them as you would your own. We love readers. That small town had a, uh, a library, and uh, in the library there were, uh, just looking for the other books here, okay, there was a, uh, an adult section of the library, and you weren't supposed to go into it if you were a kid. But uh, I was lucky enough to uh, talk the librarian into letting me into the book section, and uh, where I found some books that uh, were really quite interesting. Libraries are very intimidating places, uh, but this is a poem which tries to express the, uh, the wonder of books. When I was 11, and the librarian finally let me in to browse alone, showing me where the light switches were for each stack and teaching me a few things about call numbers. At first, I walked on tiptoe, afraid of those huge, stern books in their huge, stern leather bindings, the collected works of Horace Walpole, for instance, and the English poets' selections with critical introductions by various writers, and a general introduction by Matthew Arnold, edited by Thomas Humphrey, M.A., late fellow of Brasnose College, Oxford. I was afraid they were going to tumble over, over upon me, and literally kill me with the weight of their knowledge, especially the proceedings of the New York State Geographic Society in its 15 gigantic volumes up to 1947, each big enough to crush two babies with one blow and complete in one volume the works of Byron and Tennyson with plentiful illustrations, books so heavy you had to deal with them as if you were lifting a small boulder from an English brook, walking them spread knee to the round mahogany reading table, which was four times the size of any dining room table I'd ever seen, and ten times as imposing, especially if some adult sat ghastly there. And then you'd have the books up under one of the six reading table lamps beneath which dangled straight down tarnished bronze chain cords. I should add, for the pleasure of the image, that whoever long ago had replaced the original oil lamps had ordered the chains much too long so that each excess lay in a puddle like the coils of an Indian faker's rope trick, alone 
at 11 years old in the adult section of the Round Lake Public Library, I first began to feel all those strange names floating around me in the semi-dark. All those angels, wisps, will-of-the-wisps, great swooping birds, doves, ravens, raptors, Kant, Hegel, Saintsbury, Schopenhauer, <coughs> Swedenborg, Pliny the Elder, the Elder, Cervantes, Alex de Tocqueville, Willa Cather, St. Augustine, Seneca, Toynbee, Charlotte Bronte, Racine, Stendhal, Goethe, Dostoevsky, and I knew that what they said about old library books was true. They whisper, seek wisdom, seek wisdom, seek wisdom, seek wisdom. Repeated so often, the words begin to ebb and flow inside you, compelling you to read until your eyes fall out. The librarian, a kind elderly woman who wore her glasses on a chain, as librarians did then, long before it became the fashion, would call me out of the stacks or away from that reading table 10 minutes before closing time, and I'd emerge blinking under the arabesque light of the small chandelier to stand before the checkout desk lugging six volumes, the limit for children allowed in the adult section. And, are you sure you can handle this, she'd murmur, hefting a Plato's Republic, or the plays by Oliver Goldsmith, or Alyssa Strada, that when I snuck past her, to which I'd say, you know what that's about. <laughs> I think so, ma'am being at that time under the common illusion that librarians, especially elderly ones, had read as part of their job every single book in the library. And at last the stamp would go stamp, stamp six times, and sometimes her wrist slightly rocking as she clobbered the takeout slip too lightly at first, and I'd be out the door walking slowly past the gargoyle fountains under the huge old pines, frightened, elated, sometimes trembling, sure that the weight of the world had come into my arms, ready to learn what it was that I should do. And that's why we got to keep the libraries and the bookstores going because they're so wonderful. And that wonderful feeling. <clears throat> I seem to be in that, uh, that small town. So in that small town was uh, my mother. And... Uh, My mother, uh, I, I have to apologize in this poem. Uh, for those of you who love African violets, you can judge people in two ways generally, by what you love 
and what you hate. I hate African violets. <laughs> and my mother loved African violets. So this is a poem about African violets, but it's also a poem, because so many poems are poems written in a couple levels. It's about jealousy, really. And you'll see what the poet is jealous of here. There's a little uh, phrase that goes before it. What child doesn't long to think itself loved best? I've always despised them. Those madly blooming things in their little orangish pots along the windowsills of my mother's bathroom, bedroom, kitchen, living room, with their peaty smell of damp earth, their little caved-in flower faces that always reminded me of children in some Dickens story begging, please, sir, a halfpenny, sir, please, I've always despised their creepy caterpillar, furry, hairy leaves, their flimsy little stalks like overcooked strands of angel hair spaghetti. What are they, after all, bane of cats wishing to nibble their petals to death, false promises of horticultural success, since almost anyone can grow them, even those who failed with begonias, who went down to defeat with every other houseplant in the universe. No wonder I always tried surreptitiously to overwater, overfeed, overheat, overturn them, and like the cats who crave their sunny windowsills, knock them off their pedestals. My babies, my precious ones, my mother called them, fluttering her fingers over each, gushing even as they overran our house. Darlings, darlings, and how they ate it up preening, self-important as a tiny blog or listserv in some obscure corner of the internet, over-propagating, squirming in their pots, their Disney mouse-ear petals fluttering. They danced with purple glee. They gorged. They rioted until she died, and I dethroned their urine-sucking butts, and then joyously threw all those bastards out. <laughs> My apologies to <laughs> those who love African violets. All right, Michael uh, mentioned uh, my my love of Zen, and uh, I thought I'd read you a a little poem about the essence of Zen. And uh, very simple, really. 
And when you get really overstressed, like being a poet laureate makes you be, uh, with everybody kind of calling you up and saying, read my poem. Uh, it's my first poem. I'm only eight years old, but you're the poet laureate. Would you read it, please? <laughs> yeah, actually, I will. <laughs> it's called A Cat Named Zen. There's more to life than just eat and sleep and play. I tell my cat, who just sits around all day, looks evil into the mirror, swats butterflies, flies in sleep, turns tail on the bathroom mirror, thinks mice are his to keep or torture or nibble or bat. There's more to life than food, curl up, stretch out, or bat a mouse to hell. You should know better, cat, than that. But as is the way of cat, which is to contemplate and be in all ways cat, no more, no less, he, he just yawns and seems content with being only just whatever is. No bent thing he then seems to say, grow fat, sleep long, and when you tire of that, I'd say, well, then it's time to play. And in a nutshell, this is Zen. Eat, sleep, play. Wise in all things is my cat, Zen. That's kind of a comforting poem because that's all you have to do is you just have to be, eat, sleep, and so on. When life gets too stressful, that's a, uh, a very usual thing to do. Uh, thank you. I want to give Stanley enough time to, uh, to read, and uh, I think I've got time for one more poem here. Um, I'm from Connecticut, and... Uh, uh, Michael told you about uh, uh, the poem of mine that will be set to music. And uh, I li we live, we live uh, 12 miles from Newtown. And we know people in Newtown and so on. And the tragedy there hit everyone, of course. I would love for there to be a, a national college movement of college kids just like they protested the Vietnam War would go out and march on Washington to get gun laws. Uh, what a what a thing that would be! You know what a you know a, a real crusade for sensible gun laws. Not you know just you know ten bullets in a clip. That's enough. Uh, do we need all those assault weapons uh, anyway? This poem, surprisingly, I didn't. I had just written an article on occasional poetry and why you shouldn't write it because you can't trust your first response. But this poem literally is the only thing that's ever happened to me. It worked this way. It came out of the air. And afterwards I learned that the, I, I found out that the imagery was something that school children had used and I hadn't known about it. It's a very musical, it's a little, little chant poem. And it's just saying, I believe very strongly in an afterlife. And this is as a Buddhist. Uh, but I think Buddhists believe in afterlife and, and of one kind, Christians, Jews, everybody, you know, there is. It's very strong. I think it's so incredible that we're alive that it can't be any more incredible that there is life after death. 
It's a poem called Solace. Very simple poem with a lot of repetition in it. Newtown, Connecticut, and I'll just conclude with this one. Solace. There are the fields we'll walk across in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. There are the fields we'll walk across. There are the houses we'll walk toward in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. There are the houses we'll walk toward. There are the faces we once kissed in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. There are the faces we once kissed. Incredible how we laughed and cried in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. Incredible how we laughed and cried. Incredible how we'll meet again in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. Incredible how we'll meet again. No small hand will go unheld in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. No small hand will go unheld. No voice once heard is ever lost in the snow lightly falling, in the snow lightly falling. No voice once heard is ever lost. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dick. The state of Maryland is fortunate in having a truly lively literary culture. I believe one of the best in the country. The position of State Poet Laureate was established in 1959. Stan Plumley's predecessors include such luminaries as Reed Whittemore, Linda Paston, Michael Collier, and the late Lucille Clifton. The last time I had an opportunity to introduce Stan in this building, he'd just been appointed, and almost four years now have passed like a day. A semi-regular gig like this is especially nice because I get to hear him read at the risk of boring him by saying many of the same wonderful things over and over. I take that risk willingly. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be in his presence, and he continues to reap new accolades. Most recently, the 2010 John William Corrington Award for lifetime achievement in literature. He's been described as the most English of American poets, but his ethos is distinctly Midwestern and to my ear Southern. He was born in Barnesville, Ohio in 1939 and raised in the farm country of Virginia and Ohio. His father was a lumberjack and welder. The family moved from farm work to carpentry and back again. He was educated at Wilmington College, a Quaker school in Ohio, and Ohio University, where he received his master's and worked towards his PhD. While he was gone on a Guggenheim in Europe, his father passed away from a heart attack, the result of chronic alcoholism. 
the poet has been frank in acknowledging the central role his father's played in the evolution of his work, going so far as to call his new and selected poems, Now That My Father Lies Down Beside Me, surely one of the most beautiful and evocative titles in contemporary poetry. His more autobiographical poems, often depicting working class, rural childhood, and fraught with the tensions of a difficult family dynamic, not to mention the other vicissitudes of his father's life, suggest a number of parallels with the life and work of James Wright, another powerful poet born in the Buckeye State. It would be a mistake to overemphasize the Freudian aspects of his work. Many of his major poems are devoted to acute descriptions of the natural world and its rhythms. His birds, flowers, and trees are actual things and archetypes, not merely metaphors. He is firmly situated in a line of English poetic descent. In an interview published in 1996, he admitted to being a romantic with an interest in dailiness, the transformation of the quotidian into the universal. He has said, the essence of lyric poetry is the moment and memory. You lose something if it's just one or the other. He's won eight Pushcart Prizes, the Patterson Poetry Prize, and is a member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences. His first collection, In the Outer Dark, won the Delmore Schwartz Memorial Prize. His third, Out of the Body, won the William Carlos Williams Award and was nominated for the National Book Critics Circle Award. His ninth, Old Heart, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the LA Times Book Prize. Altogether, he's the author of 10 volumes of poetry, the most recent of which, Orphan Hours, was published just last year. In it, he explores memory and the weight of years with a new vigor. In the poem, The Crows at 3 a.m., his richly cultured, classically trained verse convolves the lessons of nature with references to plate tectonics, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Keats, Coleridge, Poe, and Wallace Stevens. This book also contains a poem called Cancer, astonishingly powerful. Uh, that uh, Stan has loaned me for an anthology. He's the very model of a modern man of letters, has taught at many great universities, not to mention his many years of service at the University of Maryland and his involvement with the Breadloaf Writers Conference. At Maryland, he's distinguished university professor and founder of the Master of Fine Arts program in creative writing. He's also served as the editor of the Ohio Review and the Iowa Review and co-editor with his colleague Michael Collier of the New Breadloaf Anthology of Contemporary Poetry. He's a true scholar and master of prose style, has written a book of essays on poetry, argument, and songs, sources, and silences, co-edited the collected work of one of his strongest contemporaries, one of my favorites, William Matthews, and produced a brilliant book on his most important forebearer as a naturalist philosopher poet Posthumous Keats, a personal biography. Once again, there are poems that you will never forget, like Infidelity, Horse in the Cage, Constable's Clouds for Keats, and Cunit's Tending Roses from every stage of his writing career. And you will soon hear his sonorous and mellifluous performance of such poems. And after you do, it will be impossible not to hear his voice when you read them on your own. 
On a personal note, as both physician and polio survivor, his magnificent poem, The Iron Lung, has the greatest resonance for me. In his beautiful introduction to the collected poems of William Matthews, what Plumley says of his friend could just as easily be said of him. He is continually a writer of the controlled embrace. And in Merwin's The Shadow of Sirius, the poet begins one of his poems with the assertion that stories come to us like new senses. It seems to me that this is exactly the experience of reading one of Stan's poems. And of the man we should remember what Plumley says of his hero in posthumous Keats. Keats, of all poets, cannot be divided between the artist and the man. One of our country's most important scholar poets was appointed poet lord of the state of Maryland. I cannot think of anyone more deserving of that honor. Please help me welcome him to the stage. <laughs> I have to say that uh, I was very happy to hear that <clears throat> I'd be reading with Dick today. Um, his work and his uh, anthologies have been a part of my growing up, actually, as a poet, since my 20s. I imagined when I would be meeting him <clears throat> that he was about a hundred years old. <laughs> it turns out he's several weeks younger than I am. <laughs> uh, a depressing uh, thought, actually. So we both have birthdays coming up pretty soon. Marking time. You know, um, Dick was uh, focused on uh, books and libraries. Uh, in the early part of his reading, I thought uh, I'd make some adjustment and go in that direction too, uh, at least in the direction of books. Um, first literary prize, Michael mentioned the Delmore Schwartz Award uh, I ever received was uh, judged by uh, Robert Lowell and uh, John Berriman and Mac Ro um, M. L. Rosenthal. Um, uh, and I was very, of course, honored to have that prize, uh, but with some uh, ambivalence because of the fact that it was in uh, Schwartz's name, who uh, ended his life very badly. Uh, I felt that that could be not just a blessing, but a curse. Um, anyway, this, this covers a lot of ground. Um, and it has perhaps an odd title. The title, by the way, ends with a comma. Ted Hughes' Collected Poems. Ted Hughes' Collected Poems. At some 1,337 pages, including notes and index in the Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux edition, is a tome 
a tomb, too, if you're a Hughes hater, an omnium gatherum, if you rejoice in the Laryngian tradition of birds, beasts, and flowers. Then there's the aesthetic dimension of the openness and violence of the verse itself, if not exactly anti-English prose verse libre. In extremis, the integrity of the line interrupted, challenged as if with bare hands and a hunting knife. Dead at 68, too young, Larkin at 63 of gin and loneliness and the stone-chill daylight of Hull. His collected in the old Faber and Faber edition a thousand fewer pages than Hughes's, who became the poet laureate Larkin would have been had he been different. Different the poems as well, traditional as a tie on a librarian, if you go for surfaces, but loving, unrelenting, savage underneath the slightly superior yet suffering tone, discreet as elegies, the rhymes, the punctuation for what cannot and can be said. Now night comes on, waves fold behind villages. Lowell's collected from the same publisher's hands as the Hughes is larger, if a hundred pages shorter. And this with prose, appendices, revisions, notes, et al., while the FS and G American Larkin is more as less than the original. Lowell, dead at 60, dies in a cab, having flown in from London and another life that day. What precisely does a poem weigh versus all the poems together? We read Lowell first standing at the shelf and loved his energy, enjambments, and formal elegy at the Quaker graveyard, even loved his esoterica with God, loved it when he changed and kept on changing those blessed structures, plot, and rhyme. We loved his madness, misalliance, endless notebook sonnets. Our own small weightless book, The Dark, he gave a prize for Dunmore Schwartz, is now part of the air. The fear that the connection, heavy in memoriam, might sentence a career was real. Dead at 53, poet in his youth, paranoid with promise, loved by friends regardless, lionized, eulogized, remembered more or less. The worn-out book of his body lay unclaimed for days in his last hotel in the naked bed in Plato's cave.
I couldn't help myself. Um, this past year, not that long ago, a really interesting poet, um, a maverick, iconoclastic, uh, difficult individual, I think a terrific poet, died. Uh, Jack Gilbert is his name. Um, I met him just once, and uh, it left uh, an indelible impression on me. He was a hard man to deal with. Uh, I'm sure I'm not the first person to have that experience. Um, there are lots of names in here. I'm going to have to assume you are aware of them. Uh, he, by the way, uh, was born in the same year in the same city as Gerald Stern, who also appears here. <coughs> then there's some others that you'll know. <coughs> Pardon me. The poem's simply called Jack Gilbert. The one time I met him was at Halpern's 30th Street and 5th Avenue apartment, 1970-something on a roof that doubled as a sort of garden space, where on other occasions Dan would roast a pig and we'd drink to the open sky or the cumulonimbus clouds drifting full-blown on parade. Gilbert came right at me, white wine tight in hand, almost nose to nose. I'll bet it's Stevens, not Williams. A bet he would have won, having read me pretty well with an Old Testament judgment that I was wrong and doomed. He wasn't tall, though he had a face sharpened with an edge of mind that seemed to cut the air like the quartz cut to flint inside his poems. Later, I remembered his picture on the cover of Gerald Stern's Red Coal, the two of them as young men walking toward the camera, talking with their hands, completely unaware they'd live a whole day longer with Paris at their backs, or that old age would mean they'd both survived, like Jeffers, Pittsburgh, as Stevens at the end survived, Hartford, Williams, East Rutherford. If poetry is one silence speaking to another silence, or otherwise communities of spirits, Gilbert's is somewhere in between. He lived on islands of his own making, white islands in waters crystalline. His obit quotes a friend that Gilbert was our greatest living poet, a large and loving claim, which we all are, ditto, until we're dead. Um, Here's another kind of poet. Um, some of you may remember him. 
from the 1960s, um, a political figure, name is uh, Ralph Abernethy, 400 mourners. The sizes of the crowds in those burn baby burn days were at best estimates, depending on who, the police, the press, the thousands in protest was counting. The body count, we called it. And after the arrest, we were lined up alphabetically for fingerprints and phone calls. It wasn't all that much, though the numbers made a difference since they argued significance. That was later at the dead end of the 60s, the rallies against the war mixed with the killings of the Kennedys and King and the nuclear meltdown of democracy at the convention in Chicago. But at the beginning of the decade, it was man on the moon, hand on the heart. Ralph Abernathy, who had recruited most of us, came by one day just to say hello. We were on the white side of the table, the soon to be eligible black voters on the other. Greenville was as liberal as it got in Mississippi the delta almost as ancient as the flooding of the Nile. The names, the spellings, the signatures, like maps of a world once flat, and the heat and the dog's breath weight of the air and the wet dust needlework of pine. People had died here under a different register as thousands more thousands of nautical miles southeast would die who had not voted. Ralph said the numbers finally didn't matter. The idea of change was enough. He meant an idea whose time has come. The few new voters each seemed wise and old, older than anyone we knew, older than par parents, or grandparents, older than the country or anger's life expectancy. They had looked into the sun. They had looked into it a long time. The Carter family newspaper spoke of joy with sometimes grief, as if the happiness of change felt like a passage. This is 50 years now, gone. It's crazy that so much of it came back to me, witnessing the funeral of a child. The countless car cortege wound through the town's winter wastes, as if the hearse could not quite find its way. There is no end to the death of a child. So that when we detoured past her elementary school, everyone, was out in the cold, in the hundreds, waving. Let me, I'll just read one more. Um, hmm. 
Whitman figures in this one. Uh, I don't know if you know, wonderful, wonderful poem by Whitman that should be anthologized and never is, a poem called The Sleepers. I think it's the first surreal poem in American literature. Uh, and it's also one of the very rare moments uh, in his work when he alludes to true, accurate uh, autobi autobiographical information. Um, in this case, his mother. There's a <clears throat> metro stop in D.C. called Farragut North. In the tunnel light at the top of the station, two or three figures huddled under tarps, built against the wind, crossing Connecticut at K. It'll be noon before they rise in their Navajo blankets, trinkets, ski masks, and gloves to start the day. Noon before the oil slicks of ice on the sidewalks, pardon me, sidewalks thaw. In the 40s, after the war, in the land of Oz, when somebody came to the house for a handout, my mother'd give him milk money or bread money, as well as bread and milk. To her, each day was the 30s. The men at the door had the hard-boiled faces of veterans, soldiers of the enemy. My mother saw something in them, homelessness, the condition of some happiness, as if in the faces of these drifters could be read pieces of parts of herself still missing, like the Indian woman in Whitman's sleepers who comes to his mother's door looking for work when there is no work, yet is set by the fire and fed. So that for my mother, the first time she left, it became a question of whom to identify with most, the wanderer or the welcomer. The stunned sycamores on K are terminal, though they'll outlast the hairline fractures marbling the gravestones of the buildings. Under the perfect pavement of the sky, the figures frozen in this landscape contemplate the verities too fundamentally for city or country. Their isolation is complete, like the dead or gods. When I think of a day with nothing in it, a string of such days, I think of the gray life of buildings, of walking out of my life in a direction just invented, or since some of us survive within the mental wards of our own third worlds, I see myself disguised for constant winter, withdrawn into the inability to act on the least impulse, save anger, and hear myself in street talk, talking street time. Such is the freedom of transformation, letting the deep voice climb on its own. Such is the shell of the body broken, falling away like money's new clothes. Such is my mother's truant spirit, moving dead leaves with the wind among shadows. 
Thank you. Well, this is uh, your time now. Uh, it's a rare opportunity to ask questions of two poets of such heart as well as eminence. Uh, I think first we should thank them for a remarkable, remarkable afternoon. So I'm up here only as traffic cop. So who would like to ask the first question? Yep, uh, this is for both of you. Um, as, as poet laureate, do you feel that your appointment in some way has changed the way you write? That you write now with a certain sense of responsibility or gravitas than form work? Or was it that your work was always like that and you were appointed post because your work sort of went in that direction or neither of those two? I'll assume that your first question was A and your second was B. If it was A, we would never have been appointed. Uh, so the answer is B. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't really think that uh, <clears throat> that um, the appointment has changed in any way, um, and I don't really believe in, except for that poem that came out of nowhere that I read. I don't believe in writing to the occasion. I uh, I read the inaugural poem for Governor Malloy, but frankly, I didn't tell him this. Um, I couldn't write a poem for him, so I revised an old poem, <laughs> and I put in some allusions to him, <laughs> and I had an audience of like 2,100 people, and they loved it, but it wasn't really about Governor Malloy, except, you know, and, uh, but it worked out, but, but no, I, no good poet really writes to, to, uh, uh, to fulfill an obligation. Well, I periodically hear from uh, our governor asking me why I haven't written the poem. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Either about him or Marilyn, I don't know which, but, uh, but I don't think it will ever happen. Uh, uh, that was really the reason that Larkin, more than anything else, refused the poet laureateship mm -hmm. of England, because it was uh, ordained that he would be the next poet laureate. Mm -hmm. He said, I'll be damned if I'm going to write a poem for the queen. Mm -hmm. It's also said that uh, Hughes is written, <clears throat> his poet laureate is the only one that did not ruin the poet. Yes. Mm -hmm. right. yeah. uh, I have a, poet, a, a question for both of you, but they're different questions. Um, I think I'm going with the mantra, save pessimism for better times. And I wanted to ask you, 
having talked about the children killed in Connecticut. I don't know why, but I'd love it if you could write a poem about why we have to get uh, investigated and take um, a test and pass an age for driving. Cars don't kill people, drivers do. And yet, it's perfectly natural that we get background checks, we take, we have an age limitation. Uh, so I would love the NRA uh, president to tell me why he is against um, certain standards for um, excessive guns. And that's an action question because I live for causes, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so there's another cause that, that I'll address secondly, but that's my first. I, I think the, uh, the problem, I, I remember having a question similar to this. Um, I do feel one responsibility as as the uh, as representing my state. I don't really think I should take a stand. I don't think I should stand with Republicans or Democrats. I think I should stand for for poetry. Um, and so I really can't write a poem uh, for a cause. the The poem I read. Uh, wasn't really a cause poem. Uh, it was a. You just can't do that. You can't. Somebody said you can't sell your soul for a bundle of messages, and and that, and I just can't do that. If it happens, it happens. It's in the poem. I think Stanley would probably feel the same way. Well, uh, you're saying yes, but you did write on Abernathy. And uh, no, Abernathy is in the poem. It's not about Abernathy. Um, it's actually about that child uh, who happened to be uh, a niece. Um, it, it wasn't uh, an anonymous child. It was someone I, I knew. Um, no, I, what Dick's talking about, you, what you want to avoid is didacticism. Yeah. That won't convince anybody of anything. That's right. Uh, the, and the problem with the argument is those people represented uh, by that spokesman, not I don't think the total picture of the NRA uh, is represented by that man. Um, uh, there's no changing his mind. There's no, there's no point in even talking to him as far as I'm concerned. Uh, my background is Quaker, uh, but uh, he's irrelevant. Uh, he's just someone you go through. Uh, I don't even know why the network's this phony I shouldn't get out here. I'm on a soapbox. Uh, this, the, the phony democracy of the net, of network television uh, feels it has to represent all sides. His is not a side, as far as I'm concerned. Well, he shouldn't be on the air. One other thing in that, and as Emily Dickinson said, tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. You don't go, you don't go didactic as a poet, and, and I think it's a, you just can't. Uh, we're going to have a book signing downstairs at the Barnes Noble table. Uh, so for the sake of time, let me uh, move on, please. Yeah, um, for both of you, though, I'm wondering, um, I guess uh, just you write hundreds and hundreds of poems, and uh, uh, inevitably, uh, 
a skill set develops um, out of that, whatever it is, I don't know, but I'm wondering if you apply that skill set when you guys are working from memory or something uh, which happened uh, immediately. I'm thinking, Stan, uh, you wrote a poem about uh, noticing a deer in the uh, right off of the beltway. Right. And I'm wondering, and I, I see similarities with how you approach memory, but there's something very distinctly different about that. Just uh, um, the moment. Just with your skill set, what I think is your skill set, anyways. I'm wondering if you approach working uh, from memory as opposed to uh, something that happens uh, contemporary. If anything different has changed your approach to writing that poem, for both of you. You know, that phrase scares me, skill set. <laughs> well, while he figures out, maybe I'll, uh, I'll take it and Stanley will think about it. Uh, I think <clears throat> many of us have different ways of writing. Um, what I do is I listen to bluegrass a lot, and I get a lot, of, a lot of phrases that come into my head. I copy them down, and I let them sit for a while, and a poem will occur out of a title or something. Another thing I do... I shouldn't probably say this. Uh, it doesn't sound respectable. But I like to write in forms. So I find a form I like, and I really love this form, but I haven't got a mastery of it. So I'll write a pornograph pornographic poem in the form. All right. And so it can't ever be published. Uh, <clears throat> it, it interests me. Um, and then when I solve the form, then maybe six months later, I'll have the form, I know how the rhyme works and how the meter works, and a real poem will come into it. And uh, I, I like a lot of different variety on, on, on something like that. So that's several ways. I approach poetry writing from nine or ten different ways, anyway. Uh, but, uh, but it's always, when a real poem happens, it, 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 you can't stop it. You know, it, it's there, and you're haunted by a word or a phrase or something or a song. Uh, I'd love to get the feeling of Hank Williams into a uh, into a poem, you know, something like that. I'd like to have a poem that sounds like a good banjo. You know. I want but, to see that poem called The Sign of Pornography. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I want to just finish this question. Uh, that... That dear poem is, as it were, contemporary, a, a moment. Uh, but the memory in the poem, it's a, I think it's a sort of a sonnet-sized poem, uh, if I remember correctly, is in the dusk, the blue dusk at the end. That is eternal. That's ongoing. That's the memory in the poem. The dear is part of that tableau, uh, if, if that makes sense. And I think uh, painters work that way, too. Mm -hmm. No matter what the subject, uh, there's memory in there. Uh, it's in, either in the color, if it's uh, realism, it's in some kind of a setting, uh, whatever. Uh, I think we can take one more question, then we need to go to the book signing. Oh, we got more time, don't we? It's only quarter after. 2.30, there'll be another meeting in here. <laughs> <laughs> he said his introductions were too long. <laughs> I have, I have, Mr. Allen, I have a very specific question about solace, which is, you know, right. I don't want to be too specific, but while you're reading it, uh, 
two poems occurred to me that might have influenced, and they're both by Dylan Thomas. One is in Death Shall Have No Domain, and the other is Refusal to Mourn. I'm wondering if those ever crossed your mind as you, if you or, or if you, in retrospect, might see some relationship mm -hmm. In retrospect, I might, but, the, but they didn't really. There was a, a poem I was trying to avoid, um, Elizabeth Bishop's visits to Saint Elizabeth, or Elizabeth Bishop's visits to Saint Elizabeth, is it? Saint Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah. Um, which which goes. This is the the uh, the house that Jack built, and he she made into a, a variety of it, uh, talking about pound, mm -hmm. and so that poem starts off with "There are the fields," and uh, I think in a first revision, it went through a lot of revisions. It, this is the field or something, and it sounded too much like it, so I had to keep it away. That other poem was trying to get into it, but the Dylan, whenever you write a morning poem, I guess Thomas comes to mind, or, or there's echoes of it, but not not consciously at all. And but that's, a, the Bishop poem is a refrain poem. Right. As is yours. <clears throat> the Thomas poem is not. Uh, uh, the great thing about the refusal, which I think is one of his great poems, is the refusal. Mm-hmm. The refusal to. Uh, uh, God knows what he would have written if he left that out, that concept yeah. out of it, yeah. and then just mourned. After the first death, there is no other. I was, I was thinking after the first death. After the yeah. Oh, it's starting at three. Yeah. Oh, we do have time. Not consciously, but yeah. We do have time for more questions. And of course now. What flowers do you like? Well, what do I like? Oh. <laughs> What'd you say? What flowers do you like? Flowers do I like? I don't like begonias because they, they fall apart. <laughs> I don't like African violets. I, I, I love sunflowers. All right. My wife and I take the last trip we did, halfway, it was only halfway across the country. We drove out to Kansas until we found the biggest sunflower field we could. We walked through it. And then we drove back. I mean, that's it. I mean, sunflowers are just amazing. If they grow too tall, I've got a poem about that too. Then, <laughs> then they're scary, you know, because they look like they're looming over you and they're going to eat you or something. But, you know, sunflowers in a field are are, are just wonderful. Poets have got to be very careful about flowers because, at least when I was growing up, poets, flowers, girls. You know, th th those are the relationships. So if you write poems about flowers, see, my father confessed when he was in his late 80s. He said, Dick, you know, I always was embarrassed that you were a poet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had like six books by then. And and, and he said, you know, they're, they're just, you know, girls write poems. You know, so... So I, I have purposely hardly ever written about flowers. Um, I, I don't think I dare to write a poem about flowers. <laughs> um, you were talking, uh, I think, a couple questions ago about how you deal with the form. Um, and uh, actually, a, a previous poetry professor of mine um, had an interesting approach to writing like prose poems, which would like write something in form and like completely like dismantle it so that way the form is like no longer there, even though it originated in form. So that one of like what You're talking about a technique like the uh, Frank O'Hara poem, uh, which talks about 
salmon, is it? And at the end of the poem, the painting disappears? Um, sardines, sardines, yeah, that, 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 that's what it is. I don't really believe much in prose poetry, so I don't know much about that, but... Uh, that was just an example. I had, like, you said you had various approaches um, with how you, how you deal with, yeah, you know, like, obscure poetry. Yeah. I don't know, maybe Stan would answer that better. The idea of structure, it happens in a poem. <laughs> to me, a poem tells itself, what, unless I'm trying something, but usually, usually structure will happen. I'll know what the poem is going to be after about the third line. It may rhyme, it may be free verse, it may be a long line, maybe a short line. I let the poem come out of the air and hold me. That's the, that's the concept of the muse. And it'll tell me its form. So it's my responsibility to know lots of forms, but I'll have something in mind. I'll, for a year, I'll say I want to write villanelles, or I really want to write sonnets, or I want to write. I'm writing Spenserian stanzas right now. I want to write a Spenserian stanza, or I want to write Zen master poems. Another thing I do, or Chinese menu poems, or something. And then the poem will come into the form. See, the idea will come into the form if I'm ready with the form to receive it. It sounds very sexual. <laughs> now, well, why do you think your uh, professor had you do that, uh, sort of reverse that process? Because uh, poetry is not prose. Now, prose does have its own rhythm, but but uh, poems have lines, and those lines are about something, um, uh, not just phrasing and clausing. They're about a certain attitude toward uh, the rhythm of the language, which begins with meter or cadence or whatever. And this is no less true of Whitman than it is of Dickinson, who, who Dickinson's following a pretty conventional model. Mm -hmm. uh, but Whitman is incredibly uh, musical mm -hmm. that way. Um, so what, what's your professor up to? What he's telling you is that it's a prose poem because it has to have some kind of music some kind of internal music, even though it's not lineated in a literal way. And if you write it out in lines, yeah. you're going to be, pay be, you'll be paying attention to that fact. And then you change the, what, what, the, the sort of uh, corporal body of it. But that doesn't change the hearing of it, uh, unless you're obsessed with line breaks. Mm -hmm. so, <laughs> forget about that. <laughs> Back. Teaching poetry. What are the most rewarding uh, parts of teaching poetry and most frustrating? Uh, <laughs> there you go. Rewarding. The check. I'm only partly facetious. <laughs> no, it's a, that's your job. That's what you do. That's what you do. You don't think about rewards. Uh, I want to go back to your point about hundreds of poems. If I had to sit down and think, this is number 311. <laughs> no, it's one poem. It's always one poem. The rest of someone else is doing the addition. But you're not thinking in those terms at all. I think my question was more about if you feel that your students are in, in some way to become also your inspiration, the process of teaching and 
No. no. I have nothing, I have several in the audience, nothing to do with my students outside the classroom. Absolutely nothing. If I did, that would be, I think it would be corrupting to me. I think it would be a problem. My job is to go into the workshop and change them. After that, they're on their own. Otherwise, it, it gets too confusing. And I think uh, 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 compromising and false. False. If you want me to come in on that, there is a, a friend of mine gave a. Uh, I uh, I left teaching as early as I could, but I did it for 33 years. Um, one of the problems with teaching is if you teach well, it's like writing a poem, frankly, because you are handling, say, 20 or 14 or whatever, you're conducting a little symphony, and your creative energies are really taken up if you're teaching well with helping your students get to where they want to go. I think the main thing in teaching, the main pleasure is when they stop sounding like you. I mean, this is really great when they find their own voices. And that's something to feel good about, I, I think, in teaching. But it's an enormously sapping sort of thing and takes a great deal of creative uh, um, energy away from you. So uh, I love doing it and I love not doing it. I don't have the check anymore and I'm living on a fixed income, so <laughs> maybe Stanley's right. <laughs> Well, that's, of course, that's why I continue to teach. But <laughs> uh, you know, I think I would—I I feel I was a failure uh, if I found a student writing like me. I, yeah. I have never had that experience, and I'm wondering if it's not my fault—that <laughs> it's something in the work that I missed. But I've never had that problem. The sign of a successful teacher. <laughs> You know, uh, even even in the visual arts, somebody as dogmatic as Joseph Albers about the way he did art always encouraged all of his students to not do what he did. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's really the sign of a great teacher is you've got to let them go their own way. Any more questions? Well, join us downstairs for the book signing, and maybe you'll think of some others on the way. I love those poems. Thank you. Thank you.